Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 120, and the fifth instalment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. While the podcast and all the content being shared over July and August is free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is an amazing Tudor book bundle, which includes the following titles. Forgotten Queens in Medieval and Early Modern Europe, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Estelle Peronk. Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications by Dr. Valerie Schutte, and Dr. Schutte's latest book, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. A huge thank you to Dr. Schutte for sponsoring this incredible prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Queenship and Catherine of Aragon is Dr. Michelle Beer. Michelle is an historian and author living and working in Oakland, California. She received her PhD in history from the University of Illinois. Her research focuses on queenship and court culture in early 16th century Britain, specifically on Catherine of Aragon, first wife of Henry VIII, and Margaret Tudor, wife of James IV of Scotland. She's written articles on material culture, diplomacy, and queenly finances. Her monograph, Queenship at the Renaissance Courts of Britain, has recently been released in paperback. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Michelle. How are you? Hi, I'm doing okay. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, I suppose a good place to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. Hi. So I uh, am a, um, I, I will say a recovering academic. I got my PhD in British history um, many moons ago, and I um, focus on the work or on the um, the lives and careers of Catherine of Aragon and Margaret Tudor. So my monograph on that subject came out a few years ago and is now actually it's just been released on paperback. So it's a little bit more affordable and available out in the world. It's called Queenship at the Renaissance Court of Britain. Um, And so my focus really has been on queenship in the British Isles in the early 16th century. I look at a lot of material culture, the queen's finances, um, and also their relationship with the wider court. Fantastic. All those juicy details that we all love to know about. Now, you mentioned your, your wonderful book. So what drew you to this area of study in particular? And why focus on the reigns of, of Catherine of Aragon and Margaret Tudor? Yeah, I've always been interested in um, British history. My parents are British, so that's always been sort of just something that I've been interested in. But this period and and this topic, you know, it really speaks to me as someone who has always sort of learned history in kind of a very traditional method where it's kind of the great man story. You come to this period in British history and you can't help but pay attention to the women. Um, Catherine, the six wives contemporaries, they suddenly kind of burst out as women in politics in a way that even, um, you know, dry and dusty history books cannot ignore. And so the more I learned about this, the more I realized that this was such a vibrant period for women, for um, uh, sort of them being involved in politics. And of course, there's been just so much great work that's been done on that, um, you know, in the most, in more recent decades that have really brought to the fore the way in which women um, contributed to this period and really kind of um, participated in politics in a way that, you know, we we don't always appreciate and, and just makes it really exciting to learn about. I think we, you know, we often hear a lot about the drama that they were involved in, but not so much perhaps in a, in a sort of popular way about the mechanics of their actual households. And I just love hearing about all this stuff. So would you mind telling us about Catherine's household, Catherine of Aragon's household in the early years of her reign? Sure. Yeah. So just some background, Catherine of Aragon, you know, she marries Henry in 1503. But she's actually been in England for a lot longer than that. She's been in England since 1501 when she arrived to marry Henry's older brother, Arthur. And so she's in this very unusual position where she's been in living at the court and the English court um, ever since Arthur's death. And she's had this Spanish household, but they have gradually been kind of essentially abandoning ship as it essentially looked like she was um, never going to actually become queen and marry Henry until suddenly she does. And then so in 1509, she has this major reversal of fortune. And as a result of that, she's got a household that that really needs to be filled with positions and mostly by English men and women. And so when she becomes queen, uh, she inherits a lot of the retainers of her previous queen of England, Elizabeth of York. She also has a few Spanish loyalists that also become part of her household. But it's this really interesting mix of folks that begin to serve her and slot into the sort of positions of the queen's household. And the queen's household was really quite large. It was over a hundred people. It's organized into departments such as um, the wardrobe, the chamber, the stables, the kitchens, that kind of thing. And it it employed, you know, folks from very, very high ranking courtiers, you know, Lord Mountjoy, who's her chief steward all the way down to, you know, minor clerks and pages and, um, and, you know, folks who just, you know, worked in the kitchen as, you know, scullery boys and things like that. So really big range of folks who are serving her and who then would interact with the queen primarily in her chamber. And so it's her chamber servants who would actually uh, would actually serve her on a daily basis. They would wait on her at table. And then, of course, her ladies and gentlewomen who would attend on her in her very her most private moment. And that's something also that's really important to kind of keep in mind during this period is access to the monarch is very, very closely guarded, both for king and queen. And it's really determined by whether or not you were allowed in the door into their uh, 
chambers, which would be sort of a series of, of rooms where they would eat, where they would socialize, where they would sleep, where they would pray. And so the servants that waited on, on the queen in her, in her chambers would be the ones who would see her most often, would have the most exposure, and therefore would be sort of the closest to her and have the, the biggest chance for rewards, which is also a very important part of court life. And we also, um, in this period, we're very lucky. We have a lot of records that show how these servants interacted with the queen. We've got uh, records of gifts that they were given um, by the queen. We know um, based on letters and other correspondence that Catherine made sure that they were rewarded with, you know, different uh, types of essentially annuities and other types of positions and properties. And we also have evidence that she participated in making sure that they had, they were, their marriages were arranged and she would give them gifts for their marriages and, and sort of act as a go-between. So there's lots of evidence that she took an interest in her closest servants and that they benefited from their relationship with Catherine as well. Just thinking about the, when it came to Catherine's death, she was quite concerned with ensuring that her staff were well looked after at the end, which I suppose is part of being a good queen. Catherine's household, is it a distinct group? How does it interact with the royal court in general? Yeah, now that's a really good question. And it's actually very hard to kind of tease out from the records because um, like a lot of things in the early modern period, everyone is is kind of connected to each other. And so there's there's a, a distinct group of courtiers and servants who are um, you know, part of the queen's household officially, but they are almost all connected in some way to members of the king's household, either by marriage, by um, relationship, or sometimes they, they came over from his household to work in the queen's household or vice versa. There was a lot of cross-pollination going on. So although it is a distinctive group and they, they are sort of treated as such, they have their own livery, they have their own badges, they also have a lot of connections and interactions with other members of the court, um, just both the king's household. And then of course, just the wide aristocracy that attended on the king and queen in England. There's um, great, some great records that uh, are, are kept by the queen's yeoman of the robes, Rister Justice, that shows that he was essentially lending money out to just all sorts of, of courtiers and, and minor servants, basically acting as a little bit of a, a kind of informal bank at court. Um, when they needed some cash, he would lend them money because he had access to funds and kind of acted as this go-between. Um, so they were clearly very connected to each other. Other, even though they were very specifically, um, you know, servants of the queen at the same time. It's interesting that you mentioned the money lending. It's come up a few times in, in recent weeks, how often people at court did operate as money lenders as a kind of side business, which is quite interesting, isn't it? You, uh, yeah. When, when you were talking about the, the department that uh, functioned under the queen's household, you mentioned the wardrobe. I love the, the hearing about the queen's wardrobe. So what was this department's main responsibilities and how did it contribute to the magnificence of Catherine's household and also, I suppose, emphasize and extend her presence at court? The wardrobe is one of the better understood departments in part because they have left us some great records. And they're also, it, it helps that it, that it is also very sort of a visually and physically um, interesting department to study. But it primarily, the queen's wardrobe is responsible for sort of two things. They're responsible for outfitting the queen herself and all of her garments from, you know, her night dresses and, and slippers all the way up to the really costly robes that she would wear for magnificent occasions like the field of cloth of gold and things like that. And then also the sort of second department would, or a second portion of that department would also be responsible for outfitting the queen's household in their livery. And so if you were a member of the household, you would get a set of clothes, a, a suite of clothes every, I believe it was every year, although they, they seem to have also just given them for specific occasions as well, where you would get a new set of clothes. And it would be in, you know, the queen's colors with the queen's badge on them. And they would all be relatively uniform, although they would be delineated by rank. So the higher in rank you, you were, the the, the better fabric you would get as part of this, this um, set of clothes that you would get every year. And so it was very interesting because these, these clothing would really denote, you know, your position, your rank, but also they would engender a sense of sort of belonging. You know, you were all kind of wearing the same clothes. You're kind of on the same team as it were, and that you would be recognized instantaneously when you were out wearing this livery as a member of the queen's household. Um, and so you would be associated with her and with the other, other uh, members of her household as well. 
well. And then in terms of actually clothing the queen, that's where it gets very, very interesting because we see, you know, patterns in terms of the, the clothing colors that Catherine tended to prefer, the fabrics that she preferred. Um, we see her receiving gifts from the queen, or excuse me, gifts from the king to the queen. He liked to give her um, very elaborately embroidered stomachers, which are, are sort of inserts that would go in the sort of front of a gown. Um, and they would be, you know, very elaborately kind of embroidered with, you know, potentially with jewels and things like this. She would receive gifts from the king for that. And then also, you know, the wardrobe would outfit her with uh, robes. And then also when those robes were out or when she was done with them, we see records in the wardrobe of the wardrobe distributing these robes to members of her household, to her close companions as gifts, which would also be like another honor and a way of sort of forming connections between the queen and her household would be to receive a robe from the queen's wardrobe that, that had formerly been um, one of her own. And we do know that, you know, these, these robes would have been potentially treasured. They may have been reworn by members of her household or potentially sort of uh, recycled into other types of robes. Because of course, the cloth during this period was what would be very, very expensive. And so you would never want to waste that cloth. Um, so if you could remake it into something, you would. Yeah, and a good example is the dress, Elizabeth I dress that was recently found and it was recycled and changed into an altar cloth. So, you know, I wonder if something like that has happened with Catherine of Aragon's gowns, but of course hasn't come to light just yet. Yeah, absolutely. And and those those gowns themselves, you know, they could be passed along. Um, we, have, we have a very famous instant incident, you've probably heard of it, where, where Anne Boleyn wanted the, the christening gown that Catherine of Aragon had used for Mary to be used um, for Elizabeth and and of course, uh, Catherine of Aragon was like, absolutely not. I'm not sending her um, this christening gown. Of course, that's sort of a, a, a sign of status and, and how rich and magnificent the, this material was that they would want to have it for, for an event like that. Absolutely. And when you were talking about the, the livery and that sense of belonging that it brought, it just like um, Lady Lyle popped into my head because the poor Lady Lyle was in Calais and spent the, the whole of Anne Boleyn's reign asking for Anne's livery. And I think finally got it like a, a two months before Anne was executed or something like that. But it does show how important it was to um, show that you were a part of the, the Queen's household, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Lady Lyle, she's a great example of that. And, and you see her, you know, actively bribing members of the yes. Queen's household to try and get that livery. And I have to assume that that sort of thing was going on with Catherine's household as well. We just don't necessarily have those wonderful letters that you do later on to show it. <laughs> yeah. And just out of curiosity, do we know what Catherine's livery looked like? Because I know, unfortunately, for Anne, Berlin's we don't know sadly exactly what the livery was like are there records for Catherine's well we do have them for the field of cloth of gold we know that they were outfitted in in scarlet livery like pretty much all scarlet but that she would have sort of different sets of clothes for different members of her household so her ladies would tend to be given tawny cloth which is sort of a, a kind of a golden yellow color and then um, her pages would be given several different sets of clothes in um, in in multiple colors and I have to imagine that these these were the the young boys that would be serving her would I guess be the the most kind of vibrant out of her retinue probably because they were very young and possibly because they were sort of very active and kind of easy to spot crowd um, so we know that we also know that her guardsmen would be wearing white and green which is sort of a, a, another Tudor color that the Tudors tended to use a lot and we also know for livery that Catherine was actually very particular there's a reference in the wardrobe book of Ellis Hilton for example that shows that he had um, a number of coats made up for her guardsmen that he had to essentially go and, and get rid of because the queen didn't like them. Um, she said, no, they're not good enough. I, you need, need to make them up again. So it, it, that kind of shows that she's really paying attention to the way her, her servants are dressed and, and wants them to look a particular way. Yeah, I love that episode. That's fantastic. It really does show that they were involved, weren't they? They weren't just on the sort of sidelines. You know, they oversaw exactly what was going on. So just continuing on the theme of, of clothing, can you tell us a little bit more ha about how at the time this reflected, you know, your honor, your loyalties and your status. Maybe just go into that a little bit more, just so we understand the importance of clothing at this time. Yeah. So what you wore really defined um, your social rank in Tudor society. And there was actually legislation called sumptuary legislation that was passed several different points um, during the Henry VII and Henry VIII's reigns that would define literally the 
type of material that you were allowed to wear based on your rank in society. And so there were certain certain materials such as cloth of gold, which is this very fine fabric that had actual gold thread interwoven into it and it could be made of velvet or silk or some other kind of very fine fabric. That that kind of cloth of gold was reserved only for the royal family. And then, you know, if you were a duke, you might be allowed to wear a cloth of silver and then it would kind of go cascade on down the, the noble hierarchy. Um, so clothing really could define, you know, where you were in, in the hierarchy of Tudor society. And it could also define, you know, what groups you would you would belong to because, you know, at the livery is the, the, the best example. But of course, even things like um, groups like guilds and um, apprentices and things would have specific clothing and emblems and badges that would denote, you know, the groups that they would belong to. And of course, kind of going alongside this, we already mentioned that gifts of clothing would, would be another way way of kind of showing honor, showing sort of the, the relationship and something that we could, um, you could sort of display or, or use in a way that kind of denoted your closeness with a particular person that you received that gift from. And so there's, there's lots of different ways in which clothing was kind of interaction, interacting with, you know, someone's honor, someone's loyalty, and also, you know, their status in society. And then finally, it could also denote your identity on a, a, a national or ethnic level. So there were particular ways ways that, you know, someone from France might dress versus someone from Spain uh, versus England. And so Catherine would also sometimes use a particular Spanish style um, when she wanted to emphasize her Spanish loyalty and Spanish heritage. So there would be particular ways of wearing her hair where it would be very long and down the back and encased in, in an embroidered net that would be considered a Spanish style versus, you know, an English style where it might be sort of pinned up under a hood. Um, and so she would sometimes do that to emphasize emphasize her Spanish loyalty. And then sometimes the opposite. Sometimes she would wear particularly English styles or English badges, like the the um, St. George's, the, the badge of St. George, for example, to kind of emphasize her loyalty to England at that particular moment. So there's lots of ways in which clothing kind of interacted with identity on a number of different levels during this period. Catherine, of course, was born in Spain, as we've we've mentioned, and came to England to marry Arthur. But she was so incredibly loved and, and the, her, her people were so loyal to her. So what are some of the ways in which foreign-born Catherine actually gained the trust and love of her subjects? Yeah, so we've we've talked a little bit about you know the gift giving giving that she would do, and then of course also the the arranged marriages for the people that she was actually close to would ensure that the um, the ladies that she brought um, with her from Spain, who sort of survived those those long years in the wilderness, um, would able would be able to make connections with English nobility, and that of course is very important for someone in Catherine's position because the nobility is really um, uh, the way in which you ensure that you have sort of influence and. Power kind of throughout the kingdom because they are the sort of centers of different regional affinities and and also influence at court in the king's household and things like that. But you know beyond the court, there's also a number of ways in which we think that Catherine probably had um, uh, obtained a a sort of strong reputation or a good reputation amongst her people. Sort of more generally, we can tell from some of the accounts of her her dower lands that she gave alms in a lot of places. She went on pilgrimages, which would have sort of exposed her to the local uh, people that as she passed through and they would have seen her in transit and also sort of uh, understood that she was going on this pilgrimage. And of course, faith was a very, very important part of being queen and, and sort of sharing that faith with her people would be another another way of, of emphasizing that connection to her people. Um, and so th- those are just some of the ways in which we, we, we know um, based on records that she interacted with her people. But we have to also understand that, you know, Catherine and Henry the court, they're always on the move. They're going from town to town. They're going from palace to palace. And that would have uh, given the folks that lived around um, those areas and it's specifically the Thames Valley. So, you know, in the sort of greater London area and the south of England, that would have given them the opportunity to sort of see the king and queen, to experience their, you know, alms as they're traveling, as they're giving them out when they're staying in different places and kind of, um, you know, begin to associate them with England and, and the royal family and loyalty. And of course, I guess the last thing 
you, you have to sort of realize also is that Catherine's queen of England for, um, you know, over 20 years. So just the longevity is going to also do a lot of good for her, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. I think sometimes we forget when we compare Catherine and Anne Boleyn, her successor, it's so difficult because, of course, Anne was only queen for such a short time and Catherine for such a long time. I wonder sometimes what would have happened had Anne had longer, whether her subjects would have changed their mind a little or, or what yes. would have happened. One of those what ifs, <laughs> one of the many what ifs of Tudor history. Michelle, tell us about some of the ceremonial and ritual performances in which Catherine participated, because it is like a big performance, isn't it? Being queen, you're always on show, people are always watching you. And how did these contribute to her influence and power? Yeah, so these these um, ceremonies and, and rituals that Catherine participates in, they're ways of really emphasizing her association with the royal family, the status of being royal, and also sort of the special position of the royal family in relationship to God in a lot of in a lot of places. So we have a ceremonies that are really focused around royal piety, such as the the royal mondi, which is the um, ceremony of the rituals washing of of feet on a um, on the Thursday before Easter or before Good Friday, and in, in the Easter um, after that. So that is something that only royals would really do, and this was a very a ritualized washing of, of the feet of, of poor, of the poor, there, there would be a designated group. And so that would be something that would kind of set them apart. It was almost quasi-sacral in terms of, of blessing the uh, these people who they were washing the feet of. Um, but then there were also much more sort of joyous and, and magnificent ceremonies that would really kind of emphasize that the pomp and the circumstance and kind of set the royal family apart from everyone else. So I'm thinking here of, of things like um, tournaments and, and jousting, where the queen would be, um, you know, participating in, in processions and then sitting up in the stands with all of her ladies being responsible for giving out, you know, favors and declaring the winner of these tournaments and really being kind of on display and, and up on a, a pedestal as part of sort of the pomp and circumstance of court. And we know that these things would have been attended by, you know, some members of the populace, although for the most part, they are going to have an audience of of kind of the court. Um, there is definitely a lot of interest in that, in, in that kind of ritual and ceremony going on at this time. And this all would have helped to kind of emphasize the really sort of special status of the queen and also her relationship with the king, because they would be seen doing these things together. They'd be interacting together. Henry loved to make a show of, of his loyalty to the queen, especially in like the early days, he would wear her badge. He would call himself Sir Loyal Heart, you know, it would be very much kind of um, a courtly love on display as part of this ideal of, of kind of a, a, a knight errant or, or what have you that Henry liked to play at. And so Catherine's a part of that. He, he needs a lady to fight for in, in, in essence. And in the early days of marriage, she would won. And, and that would sort of, you know, show folks how close their relationship was, which of course translates into power and influence for Catherine. And another aspect that I became quite interested in in the last sort of few years is the Queen's Council. And I know that you spoke about this in your work as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the Queen's Council during Catherine's reign? And I suppose particularly, was this a separate establishment, so separate to the Queen's household? And what were their main responsibilities? Yeah, so the Queen's household, excuse me, the Queen's Council is one of uh, the sort of more interesting bodies because um, it's something that you really have to kind of tease out from the records to get a sense of what's going on there. But once you do, it actually shows a really interesting side of of Catherine's potential um, for becoming a patron and 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 honestly, sort of a, a landholder in this period. The Queen, in the reign of Henry VIII, and also in in the reign of his predecessors, would be gifted with properties that she had to manage and would have certain legal rights that she would have to um, defend and also exercise. And so she would have a council, all men, who some of whom were members of her household, but some of whom were also more, more financial and, and cleric, uh, clerks, not clerical, clerks, um, uh, advisors, who would be responsible for running and at her, her properties and for also giving her advice. And so it wasn't necessarily the same as her household. It was a distinct body, but it often had um, members in it who were also a part of the queen's household. And so the distinction would have, again, been quite blurry. This is definitely a period where the um, the bureaucracy of, of the royal court is still evolving and still kind of figuring itself out. And so the, the queen's council is one of those bodies that is still evolving during this period. But it would have been made up of men that were uh, very close to Catherine, who held important positions on either her estates or in her household. And that 
would have uh, would have helped her kind of manage the the sort of business side of queenship, if you will. Yeah, it's fascinating. When I was looking at some of the records for Catherine's successor, I found that the crossover was really interesting, how some people obviously worked several jobs, I suppose you could say, and that there was also kind of a part-time element or a job share element where sometimes people shared roles, which I thought was really interesting because I I never really thought about that before. Did you come across anything like that with Catherine's household or, or council at all? Yeah, so we we see a lot of members of her council who would not only serve the queen as um, a member of her household and a member of her council, but would also hold lands from her and therefore be sort of um, officials on the ground responsible for estates. And so they might they might wear several hats. They might wear you know two or three hats uh, in serving Catherine. We know that, um, uh, for example, some of the folks we've already mentioned, such as Ellis Hilton, who was involved in her wardrobe, also leased properties from her and was essentially a tenant of the Queen's. And other members of her council, such as her Chancellor, Robert Points, he and his sons would also hold property. They represented some of the Queen's uh, lands in as members of Parliament. Um, and so there was there's lots of different overlaps um, and, and doing different types of jobs. And of course, that this sort of evolves because most of these are, are lifetime appointments. So as these positions become open, Catherine is able to put people loyal to her into these roles on her estates and sort of gradually kind of expand her influence over the estates that she owned. But yeah, that was very, very common, both overlapping and then also sort of, yeah, sharing appointments and um, time sharing, if you will, as well. It's really interesting, but it doesn't make it tricky when you're trying to work out who's the person you need to find. (laughs) So we briefly touched on the Queen's Dower properties. How important were these to her practice of queenship? Yeah, so the dower properties are really interesting. They definitely go hand in hand with the Queen's Council. Um, and so just, just a little bit of background, dower properties, normally when we're talking about them in this period, they are the lands that a woman would inherit when her husband died in order to support her. And so they would usually be a, a portion of the lands that her husband owned and and, they, and she would inherit them after his death. Uh, for queens, it's actually quite different. The English monarchy kind of sets up in uh, several hundred years before this this notion that the queen should ha- inherit or, or take over her dower properties while the king was still alive, with the idea that those properties would, would fund her household, provide her with um, the necessary income that she might need to live as a queen, and so essentially so that the king couldn't then be bothered um, by uh, by the queen's debts. So they were essentially trying to sort of give the queen a budget and make her stick to it. Of course, that almost never happened, but it did have this interesting side effect of making the queen essentially a landholder in England. The properties were hers to administer. She was responsible for, um, you know, running them. And of course, she didn't do it herself. She had this this council that would would help her with it. But she was ultimately the person who who owned these lands um, during uh, her lifetime. And then if they once the king died, uh, they would they would be her lands um, in her widowhood. And so she becomes a, a regional magnate during this period on a par with some of the great dukes of the realm. The, her properties were roughly um, similar in income and size to, you know, grand personages such as the Duke of Buckingham or, um, you know, Charles Brand and the, the Duke of Suffolk, which is, is sort of very interesting because Catherine is a foreign-born woman who is married and yet she is administering and, and, and overseeing these properties. And so she it gives her a great deal of of independence, of uh, institutional authority, and also it gives her a a lot more contact with her people because all of those properties, you know, they have tenants, they have estate officials, they have lands that need to be um, overseen, and they also get involved in, in lawsuits and um, they need to be protected from the predations of other sort of aspiring landowners um, during this period that the uh, the early modern period was a golden age of property disputes. So you get a lot of that going on in the records as well. And so all of this kind of contributes to her institutional authority because she's not just a figure on a pedestal. She's also in practice, uh, someone who uh, whose authority and name is invoked in, you know, land documents and court proceedings. And this is happening, you know, in, in a, uh, scattered across the country. Her, her states are sort of all over, mostly the south of England, but uh, some extending up into up into the north and the, um, the southeast as well. So, you know, lots of different uh, opportunities there for her to really kind of carve out an identity and an authority of her own using these dowry properties. So really essential, isn't it, to the practice of queenship? Because even if they're not traveling to 
all the locations, their presence is still evoked there, as you said. That's really interesting. And of course, the income allows them to build those ties of, of loyalty and patronage, doesn't it? And I know that Henry often had to top up his, his wife's income. <laughs> It wasn't sufficient. Yeah, it's it's a little interesting because the income, it, you know, it's there. She definitely gets income from the properties. But what's really important is the fact that she could give the 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 jobs essentially on these properties, you know, the, you know, uh, officials and um, receiverships and all this kind of stuff out to members of her household and, and her affinity. And so that's where the real kind of benefit lies is maybe not so much the income as the fact that she can give this out to uh, members of her household as a way of rewarding them. What are some of the other ways in which Catherine interacted with her subjects and strengthened those ties of patronage? We've mentioned quite a few, but are there any others that you'd like to to note? We've talked about giving out annuities to members of her household and uh, and and arranging marriages for them, which were often very advantageous, and also um, you know appointing them as officials on her estate. We also you know she does definitely also has a lot of uh, church patronage to distribute, which we haven't necessarily touched on. But, you know, a lot of her lands also come with or are associated with a different church, different types of churches, such as, um, you know, priories and, and monasteries and things like that, that she as the local landholder would expect to be able to appoint uh, various positions to. And we also we have records that, that show that she was actually very vigorous in, in defending that ability to appoint uh, her favorite clerics to positions um, in the church. And so it's, it's very interesting because Catherine, you know, she has this reputation as being very loyal to the church. She's famously, you know, is very loyal to, you know, the Pope um, uh, by the end of her uh, her reign when she becomes conf- in conflict with Henry. But that doesn't mean that she is just going to sort of let the church walk all over her as a landholder. She actually wants to make sure that, you know, when a position becomes vacant in um, different, um, these different livings that she holds, that she is the one who gets to choose who's going to be the next, you know, abbot or or prior or, or you know, what have you of these, of these different positions. So I think that's also an interesting, interesting sort of uh, insight into her character that she isn't just some sort of docile, very pious woman. She, she's also a very shrewd um, sort of politician and businesswoman in some ways. Religion, we can't underestimate or, or say enough how important religion was at this period. It was the sort of backbone of everything. So what role did queenly piety play in the successful performance of queenship? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right that the piety really is kind of a cornerstone um, for um, all public figures, but but the monarchy and queens especially. And it's it's worth remembering that Catherine was really the last English queen for whom the loyalty to to the established Catholic Church was was completely uncontroversial. It was what nearly everyone in England that, um, held in this period. You know, Protestantism is just a gleam in the eye of a few London radicals when Catherine is. Queen for most of her reign, and so she's she's uncontroversially Catholic um, and 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 pious in a very public manner, and and all almost all of her subjects would have also felt the same way and would have expected her to behave this way and would have seen her piety as a proper and, and good thing not only for for themselves but you know for the country as a whole. Having a monarch who is loyal to God is is a way of ensuring that you know England itself will be blessed and and that your by extension, your lives would be um, better, hopefully. Um, and so there's a number of public expressions of her of her piety that would have emphasized this fact. We talked a little bit about, you know, the Royal Mondi, which is this very elaborate um, ceremonial ceremony that she participated in, the pilgrimages across England. Uh, she was very avid pilgrimage goer, sort of much more so than her husband. So she would have been associated with that more so than him, I think. And, and, and gifts of alms, um, you know, nearly everywhere she stayed would have given out alms um, to the poor at her gate. Um, so these were all very public displays of Catherine's faith um, that would have you know, been in the minds of her people that would have seen them or heard about them in different ways. You mentioned the sort of expected behavior of a queen when you were talking just then. So they were really expected to be beyond reproach. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think that's quite interesting. 
the, the reputation is, is so important for, uh, you know, women in this period, uh, especially, but then uh, queens um, in particular, and, and being able to, to show in a public manner that you are, are doing all of the right things, essentially, um, you know, attending church, performing these pilgrimages, giving out alms, being a loyal wife of the king in, in various ways, having that public image and that reputation really solidifies and, and is, is kind of a protection for Queen because um, as we can see with her with her successor, Anne Boleyn, you know, a reputation is incredibly hard to um, kind of get back if you do something that is controversial, such as, you know, marry uh, a king in a very controversial manner. And so uh, Anne Boleyn has a, an enormous amount of trouble in part because it's very difficult to get your reputation back if you begin to lose it um, and to establish yourself in that way. And so Catherine is um, very shrewd in that way. She she definitely behaves in a way that is above reproach. She's very good at making sure that when she does have an opinion that maybe goes against the mainstream, mainstream, she she attempts to express it in ways that is very diplomatic or or behind closed doors. So it's not particularly public um, in the ways in which she might she might sort of try to influence the king, which of course then makes our jobs as historians a little more difficult in terms of, of determining exactly how much influence she had because she was actually quite good at kind of hiding it in a lot of ways. But yes, that that sort of public performance of, of piety, of loyalty, and of all of the sort of values that that women were expected to have in this in this period go a long way towards kind of um, elevating her queenship and, and making her kind of secure in a lot of ways. So many things that have struck a chord there that you've said just in, in terms of their reputation being their protection. And I see we see this play out not very well in, the, in her successor's reign, unfortunately. So I'm assuming that because of this reputation, I think in your in your book and in your work, which I love, you talk about this kind of moral capital that Catherine's been building throughout her reign. And I love this idea because then, of course, she draws on this later on when there's all the dramas with her marriage. So presumably these are the reasons why you you sort of feel that when Henry tried to, to get rid of her and she resisted, that the public really did not criticize her, her subjects. And normally you'd think, okay, she's going against her husband, against her king, you know, that there would be a lot of criticism, but there wasn't. So how do you think she avoided this sort of public opprobrium at this time? So this is a very interesting and and I think sort of potentially really fruitful area for study, I think, um, because I've only sort of touched on it very briefly. But I think, you know, we see that Catherine is able to position herself during her resistance to Henry as um, uh, being on the side of God, of, of sort of drawing on her reputation for piety, of her lo- of her um, reputation for, for being loyal to the church, to really emphasize that she's not opposing her husband so much as sort of remaining true to the, the church and the, the church teachings, um, and is able to kind of frame herself that way so that when Henry begins to question their marriage, she she's not seen as, as opposing her husband um, uh, so much as sort of remaining loyal loyal to, you know, her faith and, and, and the established Catholic church. And of course, as this fight draws out, Henry becomes increasingly more sort of radical in his attitude towards the church. And Catherine is able to sort of maintain that kind of more stable conservative position, which of course, most of her, her subjects would have agreed with. And that's, that's again, something that a lot of um, scholarship over the past several decades have really emphasized is that the, the Reformation in England was not something that was popular at the beginning. It was not something that was really wanted by the populace. And so it definitely makes sense that Catherine's um, defense of the church her, her, her reliance on kind of um, uncontroversial interpretation of the Catholic Church's power is going to be something that resonates with her people. And that plus just, the, yeah, again, the longevity of her, her tenure as queen, the fact that she really sort of makes all of the right moves and, and does the right things during that period um, in, in public, that that all kind of goes towards protecting her as, as someone who essentially is opposing her husband <laughs> and, and preventing him from doing what he wants to do. Um, but also then the, the, the next step is that it means that Henry can't make a lot of unilateral changes and, and moves against her or out of, out of a certain amount of paranoia against what would happen if he did that. Um, he's very conscious of his reputation, both at home and also abroad. And so he knows that he can't simply, you know, claim something very outlandish against Catherine, like claiming that she's disloyal or, or something like that or, or was unfaithful just to get rid of her, which certainly 
in the past, for a lot of queens, that was the way you got rid of someone you didn't want. You you stirred up a bunch of rumors about her, locked her in 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 a tower somewhere, and and just sort of moved on with your with your life. Um, and he really couldn't do that with Catherine, uh, in part because she cultivated this reputation over the course of of years for being, you know, a a kind of ideal queen consort in a lot of ways. Yeah, again, emphasizing just exactly what you were saying, that her reputation over the two decades or plus was really her protection, wasn't it? It was like this protection screen. And of course, her incredible connections all over Europe as well helped. Yeah, we we can't also, and we haven't talked about this probably quite as, as much as we should have, but yes, you can't also underestimate the fact that she has got, uh, you know, on her side, uh, the fifth, who is her nephew, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Duke of Burgundy. He, he's got a lot of power and, and influence in Europe. And Henry generally was very concerned that um, Catherine was going to call up her nephew to come invade England. Um, In hindsight, we know that was highly unlikely that Charles would have done such a thing and that Catherine would never have really asked him to do that. But that that also is definitely a part in her in her arsenal, at least against Henry, that she could have done that. Now, I think uh, publicly, you know, with the populace, that would have actually been the wrong move to make because there's nothing the English populace at this period hated more than foreigners. Um, and so she's actually better off kind of emphasizing the fact that she has been in England for this period of time, that she really is this, the queen of England and, and sort of downplaying her foreign connections, at least in public, whereas in private. Private, absolutely. Um, she's relying on those connections to get what she wants and to protect her as well. Incredibly shrewd and astute politician, <laughs> Catherine of Aragon. And of course, she was raised to be queen, like from her earliest memory. That's probably, which is a, a big difference with Henry's other consorts, well, subsequent consorts really, isn't it? Because she, she just knew perfectly how to perform the role. Yeah, and and we see both uh, during this period where she's determined to hold on to it, but also even when um, back when she's she's just a teenager arriving in England after Arthur's death, she really believes that it is her sort of God-given destiny to be Queen of England. And so it becomes um, something that she holds on to very, very tightly during two very difficult periods of her life. Um, and so although as much as we want to, you know, uh, emphasize that she's a very shrewd political operator, uh, she's a very intelligent woman, there's also a certain amount, I think, of uh, emotional attachment to this role and to this belief and this faith in the fact that she should be queen of England that we also can't discount, right? These are these are flesh and blood people that we're talking about. They're not just sort of, you know, Machiavellian politicians at the same time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Great point. Now in the sort of popular mind, I think things are shifting a little bit, but generally when we think of Catherine of Aragon, we do unfortunately tend to think of the fact that she wasn't able to, to have the son. She didn't give Henry the heir. Do you think that Catherine was a successful queen consort? I really do. And I mean, I'm absolutely biased. I've spent a large chunk of my life um, studying her. I will admit that fully. But I think by any any measure of what queens should have done and needed to do during this period, she fulfills them on on multiple levels. Now, that that doesn't mean, you know, in the end, it's sort of a, a, a real kind of testament to the fact that you can be very successful at something and still ultimately it's it's just not good enough for you know, Henry VIII, um, which I think is, is, is probably more about Henry than, than Catherine, um, because I think, you know, there's there's a lot of what ifs in Tudor history, as as you've said before, there's there's no real reason why um, just having a daughter should have made her automatically an unsuccessful consort. There's lots of precedents of what to happen, what to do when you have only a female heir, and that was not necessarily sort of a, a complete um, a black mark on her care, on her, or her queenship. It really is the, the fact that Henry decided to make it the issue when he essentially becomes convinced that that God is punishing him and that's why he doesn't have a male heir. Up until that point, I don't think it would have been really truly an issue. And and let's be honest, also, um, nature would have likely taken its course. There's every certainly every chance that Catherine was going to predecease her husband. She was older than him. He, he definitely would have had um, additional opportunities to marry and, and get a male heir. So there's there's lots of ways in which this would ha- could have turned out very differently if if Henry hadn't sort of just decided to take matters into his own hands, I think. 
Michelle, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I really do love looking at queenship and, and discussing perhaps some of the things we don't hear about too often. But at the end of all the episodes in this series, we I'm asking my guests for a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the show that may just deepen their understanding of the period or of queenship in general or, or of one particular queen, if you like. So do you have a takeaway for us? Yeah, so I I would love to recommend a novel, something fun, but I think also something that really al- allows you, uh, immerses you into the world of, of the Tudor court during this period. And um, it's not about specifically about queens, but it is about women and their roles in this court. And um, I think it's, it, it does a really great job of showing the sort of socialization, the interactions between um, men and women, the different pressures that women were under to to marry, but also to maintain that reputation as we've been talking about before. And so it's called Forsaking All Other by Catherine Mayrick. And I think it's set, it's set a little bit after um, the time period we've been discussing today. I tend to prefer things that are a little bit farther away from my own period because I find that I, it allows me to relax a little bit more after a day of work. But I, I think that this, it, it does, I just really impressed how well the author manages to convey both the, the, the sort of perils of being a gentlewoman during this period and and sort of navigating the world of the Tudor court, um, but also the enjoyment and the fun and the the liveliness of this period for men and women where where they are mixing together and having all of these different social interactions and these, you know, these love affairs and um, all of these different kind of intrigues, something that, you know, we focus very much on on the royalty um, during this period, which absolutely I can understand, but a lot of more, a lot of interesting things are also going on at the court sort of around them. And I think this novel really allows you to kind of dive into that and, and get kind of a take a taste of what that might have been like for a young woman at court as, as during this period. That sounds fantastic. That's not actually one I have. So there you go. I'm going to buy another book now, <laughs> which happens every Excellent. time I talk to someone. <laughs> oh, good. Now, before I let you go, um, are you working on anything Tudor related at the moment or have you moved on to other subjects? I, I have um, primarily moved on to other subjects. I, as I said, I'm a, a recovering academic. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had um, a few articles published in the past um, year or so that are, that are, are around, but um, for the most part right now, I'm focused on work, I'm hoping to get back into it as, as work kind of calms down um, and maybe things go back to normal after this, this crazy year that we've all had. But uh, for now, this is actually the first time I've had the opportunity to speak about my work in a while. So it's been a real pleasure. Oh, and thank you so much. I hope it is inspires you to, to dive back in because I'd look forward to any other work that you that you have coming out. And thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Tudors with us. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.